morning, church. Shalom to all of you. Please have a seat. Welcome to Church of Saviour, our communion weekend. This morning, someone asked me, Pastor, what's so special? You know, because uh, why are you wearing your clergy collar? I know everyone is thinking about this, so I had to. Well, yesterday we had a diocesan event in the morning, so you know when I'm in the diocese, I have to wear my uniform. Uh, so I happened to be wearing that, so I didn't want to keep changing. Otherwise, a lot of laundry to do for my wife. But, but every service is actually very special, amen. And I think sometimes we forget. You know, we, we get so used to coming to church, we forget that this is the presence of God. You know, this is where the people of God are gathered, and where two or three are gathered, God is there. Jesus! Did you know that Jesus is here? Right, he's here. And I, I'm so excited because God is doing so many wonderful things in, in our midst, in this place, in this presence. I just have some stories I want to share with you this morning before we jump into the sermon. You know, there's so many things that have been happening in church that sometimes we just don't have the opportunity to tell you all this amazing stuff. Some of them we can't really tell you because they are a bit sensitive in nature. But there's one particular one that I, I do want to share with you uh, just to encourage you that God is up to something. Now, many of you will know that we have our cafe oasis during the week, right? And, you know, for years they've been doing this. Even before COVID, and, uh, you know, they had to stop because of COVID. But then after COVID, before the buildings were up, they were already doing that in anticipation that people will come to this place, right? People will drop in and they'll find there not just coffee and cakes, but they'll find Jesus. Well, about 10 days or so ago, uh, I was down here and I saw that there was a man that his name was Mr. Sue. He doesn't come to church. He's not a Christian. Actually, he works in the temple. Right, he works in the temple, but he happens to stay near this place. So, you know, when he comes back from the bus stop, I guess, he's walking through this place and he'll walk past our church on his way home. Well, I found out that he was, you know, he was actually having some problems with his eyesight. Actually, he was going blind progressively, right? It's, you know, people don't go blind, like switch off the lights. Huh? They actually get blurrer and blurrer, right? So he was, his eyesight was getting worse and worse. And so when he stopped by the church, he said that he will pray. And he said, I will pray like this. So I had to check, which God are you praying to, you know? Jesus, you know, because he knows it's a church. So he's praying to Jesus and he's praying for his eyesight and things like that. And I was, okay, then what happened? Well, you know, after a while, my eyesight got worse. I said, that's not good. <laughs> my eyesight got worse. He went to see the doctor. And the doctor checked him and found that actually his eyesight was normal. But because he was still wearing the glasses, he couldn't see anymore. So he actually had to remove the glasses and he could see. And he said, you know, last time I couldn't see the word cafe oasis. Now I can read it, except now he's a bit long-sighted. And that afternoon, when he came to Cafe Oasis, you know, I think Christian Cha was there, prayed and he accepted the Lord. This is so crazy. You know, God is not just doing this for people who are going blind or walking past the church. You guys are here. You know, I think God wants to do something for all of us. Amen? You know, sometimes we forget this. I think it's very easy to forget that God has a plan for all of us. A plan that involves us drawing close to Him, to be encouraged by Him. Amen? And, you know, there's just so much going on. This morning also, uh, about a hundred or so of our brothers or men 
are actually in Batam, right? They are, they are not in church today, but they are actually worshipping uh, together in Batam, and Pastor Chris Ho is with them. Uh, we, later on, we'll see some pictures from uh, from Batam about what they are doing out there. They are growing, lah, because I know they are eating a lot, so I don't know what kind of growth, but they definitely are growing. And also, uh, this uh, weekend, our young adults are also not here. They are actually uh, over in downtown East. They are having a young adults retreat. They are also seeking God together. All over this church, in this community, we are seeking God. We are asking for God to send His revival. Amen. And I hope this is true for all of you who are here with us today, that you will not exclude yourself from all that God is doing. You will be part of what is going. Jump into the river and see what God is doing. Amen. Amen. So this is, uh, I thought I'll share this with you because, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, God is on the verge of bringing a revival. But I keep saying on the verge because it is not a revival unless you are revived, right? He might be doing all these things for other people, but unless he does it for you, it is not a revival for you. Today we are looking at John chapter 3 and 4, the gospel of John chapter 3 and 4. We are finished with the uh, First John series, but today we are wanting to look at something that, you know, God has been, I think, speaking to me about, and I'm trying my best to convey to you why this is so important. We are looking at John chapter 3, and let me just read for you the first two verses. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, but no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So we have this introduction of a man called Nicodemus. Now the Bible tells us that he was, first of all, a Pharisee. And, you know, many of us are very familiar with this word, Pharisee. We, we hear a lot about the Pharisees and uh, we often think kind of poorly of them, you know, because, wow, these Pharisees, you know, they are legalists and all that. But who are the Pharisees actually? Right? I, I'm not sure if you ever thought about who are the Pharisees actually. Well, let me help you understand a bit. When Moses received the law from God, right, the people of God, uh, they, they were beginning to become a nation. So they were given the law of God. And God was traveling with them. right? God was traveling with them in, in the shape of uh, this tabernacle. So when the Ark of Covenant was carried with them, there, were, there had been a tabernacle. They would travel around with them. Now eventually, they came and they located themselves in the promised land in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, you have this place called the Temple Mount, on top of which is the temple that Solomon eventually would build. Now, the religion of these uh, peoples, right, they're, they're not all Jews. When you say Jews, you mean Yehuda, right, the Judah, that's the southern kingdom. There's also the, the ten tribes of the north. Together, all of Israel, their religion revolved around the temple. Right, your sacrifices can only be made to God at the temple. Um, when you, you know, three times a year, you had to go up to the temple to offer your sacrifices. That's where you have the day of atonement. Your sins are forgiven. That's also where all the different events would, you know, be held around this temple. So the temple was central, and that's also one reason why today in uh, the Middle East, you know, they are always fighting over Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the one piece of property that has been fought over probably more than any other property throughout history, right? So, on this mountain is the center of all their faith. This is the point where God comes to meet with man, the intersection between heaven and earth. That place on the Temple Mount was really, really very special. 
And the Jewish people will center their whole religious faith and to some extent their identity around Mount Zion. Mount Zion is just another name for the Temple Mount. It has many names, right? So one of the names is Mount Zion and another name is Mount Moriah. In any case, this was the the center of their Jewish, I guess the Israeli identity, the center of their faith. Now the trouble was in 586 BC, the Babylonians invaded and they destroyed the temple. And when they did that, someone pulled the rug out of under this whole nation. All of a sudden, where were they going to offer up sacrifices to God? They're not allowed to do it anywhere else. Where are they going to get their sins forgiven? All of a sudden, this whole nation was thrown into this array. And on top of that, the Jews were scattered into the, uh, into the different lands, right? Into the uh, surrounding nations. So, it was during this period of time, during the exile, that the, I guess the Israeli people and the Jews of Judah, they began to look for somewhere else to pin their faith. During this period of time in the exile, they found that the only place they could do that was to put it in the law, in the book of the law, in the Torah, right? So, out there in Babylon and all this, they would come together, they will form uh, congregations, and they will meet in what we call synagogues. Synagogues, so say, and they will do that. They're not going to sacrifice anything. Here, they're studying the Word of God. They're mastering the Word of God. They're trying to obey the Word of God, and they will have teachers that they'll call rabbis, right? Rabbis during this time. And so, this evolved. So now, Instead of centering their faith on the temple, they centered their faith on the Word of God. Now, I, I guess that's a good thing, right? They begin to understand the Word of God, but there's no more temple. Now, eventually, they rebuilt the temple after 70 years. It wasn't as uh, glorious as uh, Solomon's temple. Nevertheless, the temple was rebuilt. So they came back to the land, and by and by, over the time, those people who studied the Word of God evolved you know, by about 150 BC, into a group known as the Pharisees, right? So the Pharisees were people who were very interested in so-called the law, very interested in the law. But it wasn't just the law of God, it was also the fence laws that they have constructed around it to ensure that people kept the law, right? So there was the laws and there was the law in order to protect the law, right? The laws of men. And you have another group of people who kind of like, continued to build their identity around the temple, those were the Sadducees. So now you can see there are these two competing centers of their religion. This was the institutionalization of the faith of Israel, I suppose you could say that. Now, when we step back and look at this bigger picture, we are told that Nicodemus was one among these Pharisees. He was someone who studied the Word of God. He was supposed to know the Word of God. And actually, he was viewed as one of the spiritual leaders of the land. Because people who wanted to know about God would come to the Pharisees and ask them, you know, how do I do this? How do I do that? What does God want? They will ask the Pharisees, right? And when they want to offer a sacrifice, they'll go to the temple. Maybe they'll look for the Sadducees. That's kind of how their religion went. We are also told that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews, right? This is not the measuring the land kind of ruler. Huh? This is a uh, someone who basically had uh, a leadership role in the community of the Jews. So Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who was a ruler of the Jews, was very well placed in society. He's, he's got it made, you know. He, he's got everything. He had position, he had power, he had status. He's probably wealthy as a result of this. Because, you know, those days, 
You didn't just become a Pharisee, right? You didn't just become a ruler of the Jews. You had to be very well connected. You had to have a, a good background, maybe even a good family. So when we think about all of this, that is now the religion of the Jews, this faith of Israel as it were, you realize that God never asked for any of this. Right? God never asked for any of this. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 7, God said, Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, that's in the wilderness, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, that is Judah, right? The Jews. You know, because David was this shepherd. Saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So this was a rhetorical question. God is saying that, did I ever ask you to build me a temple? You think about it, he didn't really ask them to build him a temple, right? David wanted to build God a temple, a house. When God heard it, he kind of laughed and said, you want to build me a house? I will build you a house, right? And But God condescended. God said, okay, well, you know, if you want to build me a house, all right. And God condescends in some ways to the plans of men. Right? Because he knows that as humans, we all have a craving for the tangible. It's very hard for people to worship the invisible. We get frustrated after a while. You know what happened in Israel was they, they had a king. Their king was invisible. Right? So you can't see God the king. When neighboring envoys came to Israel to ask, we want to see your king, the people would go like, um, well, you can't see our king. Why can't we see your king? The truth is we can't see our king either, right? This is kind of embarrassing. We want to discuss, you know, politics and business with your king. I'm sorry, you can't do that. You can talk to the priests, you can talk to the prophets, you can't talk to our king because, well, we, we don't actually know where he is. You know, he's somewhere here. So after a while, they, you know, they looked at their neighbors and they said, you know, we want a king like our neighbors. That's this human need for something tangible. And I think we all have that. I guess, desire to be like other people. I remember when I was very young, I, I went to school, and those days, all my friends in school would wear this shoe called Bata. Right? I, I don't know how many of you, if you know what I'm talking about, you're probably quite old. Right? Bata was the Nike of those days. Okay, so I was wearing Fongkyong, some Chinese brand. And I was like, why does everyone have bata and why is mine saying fungkyong? Now listen, it's still a shoe. It still works, okay? But there's something about us who want to be like other people. We want something, you know, see, you, you want, no, for no other reason than everyone else is doing it. God condescended to them. Say, you want a king? You want a human king? It's not my plan, but you can have it, right? Now I think in some ways, the, the temple was also a condescension. God was giving us what we want. Not what he wants, but what we need. And I guess we all need a kind of faith that is tangible. We want to be able to touch, see. We want to be able to smell this God. Because well, all these other nations appear to have tangible gods that we call idols. right? And that's really the danger, the inherent risk with tangibility. It's after a while, you don't worship the God behind the thing. You end up worshipping the thing. right? Instead of looking at God behind the institution, they start making the institution the center of their worship. And I think this is precisely what happened here, right? Where they did it with the bronze snake, for those of you who have read that before. Right? They started worshipping the snake that Moses made, that God did for a good purpose, but they eventually started worshipping it. 
and Hezekiah had to destroy it. And this is the same throughout history. We all have a propensity of idolatry. We want to worship things that we can see. But what God wanted was not any of this. What God wants was relationship. You know, in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 8, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah and says that all these people, they draw near to me with their mouths, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts, they're far away from me. What God wants today as we come together is that our hearts will draw near to Him. I think that's such a good word uh, that we sang this morning, to draw near to God, to come near into God's presence. Today, this is God's desire for every one of us. But as with time and you know, with people, the religion became more and more sophisticated, right? You create more and more rules about you know, how you should dress, about the things that you should say, the right way to pray and the wrong way to pray. And this will just continue to grow and grow and grow. And as it turns out, all this institution, it wound up keeping people away from God instead of drawing people near to God, right? They make it hard for people to approach God. They make it hard for people to actually see God because the building is so beautiful. The disciples looked at the temple and said, wow, look at all these pillars, look at all these buildings, so amazing. And Jesus was not impressed. Jesus wanted to see past all of that. He wanted them to see God. So all these people, right, the religious institutions. Well, guess what? Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. He was part of this whole institution. It's also part of this whole society's problems. Now, the people in the lower ranks of society, they'll look up to Nicodemus and they see them do this and say, oh, that is how we are supposed to come to God. In order to come to God, I have to say things like this, I have to dress like this, you know, I have to behave in this way, I have to approach God in this particular way. But Jesus sees through all of this, and what he saw was behind all of this, there was an emptiness in their religion, right? So in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, Jesus kind of criticizes the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. These were the people who were the experts in the religion. He says, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which are indeed which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Behind all that regalia, behind all the show of religion, there was a deep emptiness, an absence of God, an absence of power. You know, I just came back from uh, a short break overseas by myself, you know, and usually when I go overseas, I will visit churches. I, I make it a point to try and visit churches. And there was this particular church that I visited. It's a beautiful, it's so beautiful. The first thing I step in the church, I pull my camera, right? Take a picture of it because it's so gloriously beautiful with the colors, you know, uh, and the stained glass window. The aircon was coming from under the ground. Obviously, it's quite old. The bricks were beautifully managed. Such a beautiful church. A service was going on. A service was going on. There was Holy Communion service, you know, and I, I could see what's going on, but there was nobody in church at all. It was completely empty. The building could sit 600 over people, but it was completely empty. I was a little bit confused. Are they rehearsing? But no, it was a proper service. No one at all. I sat down quietly, right? Uh, towards the end, benediction. They were blessing. I was, there's nobody there. I felt that 
I, you know, all the blessing came right to me. I was the only one in the whole place, right? Normally here, you have to share, right? I, so afterwards, I went up, I, I spoke to the, I guess, the pastor. And uh, I said, do you do this, you know? Uh, even if nobody said, oh yeah, five times a day we do this. Even if there were no one here, I said, wow, really? And, and she, she said it with some kind of pride, you know? I was thinking to myself, I'd save the electricity, you know. I mean, turn on the aircons, the lights and everything. There's nobody here. You can do it at home. So we talked for a while and then I asked her. It was a very long conversation. We spoke for nearly an hour. So I asked, so what do you guys do for evangelism? Because obviously there's nobody here, right? So what do you do for evangelism? She looked at me confused. Evangelism? Oh, we are not that kind of church. Now here I'm really confused. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Evangelism, you know, like Matthew 28, right? No, we are not that kind of church. There are other churches that corral people into the church. No, we are about our traditions, our legacy, our sacred music. Our sacred music, we have a beautiful choir. Oh, your church, about 200 people. Huh? Your church members sing in this choir. Oh, no, no, no. We pay people to sing in the choir. Oh, so the choir is performing. And there's not even your members worshiping. I was so confused. When I walked away, I realized, you know what? This building has all the trappings of religion. But it was empty. Both literally empty. But it also was devoid of God's power. And then I thought back about our church. Oh, wow. You know, sometimes we also become institutional religion, right? We have learned to behave in certain ways, to say things a certain way, but we need to all step back and realize that what God really wants is not just these things. What God wants is for us to have this connection with Him. Amen? Are you following me? So Nicodemus, he was someone who, he had it all, right? He, he had it all and uh, he ticked all the check boxes. <laughs> he, the probable five C's, he's got them all. But he knew that he was missing something. When he sees Jesus, he sees that Jesus has something that he did not have. Right? He saw something in Jesus that he did not have. He said that, Rabbi, you know, you are a teacher who has come from God. You came from God. This man, he talks like he, he just met God this morning. Right? This Jesus, the way he teaches, it's, it's not like he studied the books. It's like he just spoke to God. So he's like, something about Nicodemus drew him to Jesus. Now, he said, we know, we know that you are a teacher come from God. That means it wasn't just Nicodemus himself who knew. The, all the Pharisees, they all saw this and they, all of them together were thinking, this man, we don't like him, but you know, mainly because he was not one of us. He doesn't dress like us. But we can't deny that he had something. What was this something that he, he it's, it's like it's like he has a relationship with God of some kind all of them they knew this but I guess they didn't do anything about it maybe they they dismissed it right they, they felt a, a need in their heart a tugging and I wish I wish I had if I'm honest about it I wish I had that relationship I wish I knew what his secret was what this Jesus secret was. What, what kind of conversation does he have with God? I would like that. They all felt this secretly, but they never expressed it. Because you know what? They had to be respectable, right? 
I'm the, supposed to be expert. How can I admit that there's a hole in my heart? How can I admit that I feel powerless? I feel empty. With all the show religion, so many of them, they, they had to remain respectful, right? So they, they didn't do anything. But Nicodemus, in the dark of the night, scuttles his way out of Jerusalem, across the hills, goes to Bethany. Probably it's where Jesus tends to stay, right? At the house of uh, uh, Lazarus. He probably makes his way quietly, in maybe to maintain his aura of religious respectability, right? Didn't want people to see that as a leader, you're looking for answers from someone else. <laughs> so he comes, he knocks on the door. You know what the Bible says? Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. You know, this is really great, right? In Matthew chapter 7, it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds and he who knocks to him it will be opened. Nicodemus, you have to give him credit for this. He was honest enough and sensitive enough to his own spiritual state that he decided that, you know, I'm not going to just sit here and think about this. I'm going to go find Jesus. I'm going to ask him myself what his secret was. So here was Nicodemus, right? Coming over. Now, I, I think many of us probably feel this kind of tugging in our lives from time to time. We feel like we, we need something. We are lacking something. But there's a human tendency to fill that need with something else. You know what I mean? We, we, tend to, we tend to provide something else to distract ourselves from our true need. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus gives this parable. He says, you know, there's a certain rich man whose ground yielded plenty. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? Since I have no room to store my crops. He said, I'll do this. I'll put down my barns, I'll build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods later for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will be those things which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You know, there are, there's uh, two kinds. You can be rich in a sense, but you can also be poor at the same time. And many of us, we provide the wrong kind of uh, things for our own lives, right? When we are, it, it's, it's like when you're hungry, you're really hungry, and then you decide that you're going to watch a movie, right? Watching a movie can distract you for a while, it will not stop you from being hungry. So this man thought that he had everything, his soul was satisfied, but he missed the biggest thing. He was not be able to be sensitive to what he was lacking. You know, the parable continues, Do not seek what you should eat, what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your father knows that you need these things, but seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. So in any case, Nicodemus, he gets it. He not only gets it, he got it sufficiently that it moved him from his place. I think Christians all kind of get this. But whether it gets us enough for us to do something about it, I think that's the key here, right? Because if, if Nicodemus just sat at home and thought about it, then probably nothing would have happened. But as it were, he came, he knocked. Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Because at this point, he was a bit confused. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? In other words, 
Nicodemus was asking Jesus, what do you mean, Jesus? How can we be born again? Infuriatingly, Jesus does not answer this question. He just says, you need to be born again. And I think there's something very powerful here because every time I read this before, I thought, okay, this is for new Christians, right? This is for people who are now coming into the faith. They have to be born from being a non-Christian into a Christian. But Nicodemus' question had nothing to do with salvation. He wasn't asking about salvation. I think he was asking about relationship with God, right? So he wasn't strictly talking about, yes, this could apply if you are coming to the Lord for the very first time. You do need to be born again. But I think Jesus wasn't just talking about that first time thing. He was talking not about physical birth for sure, right? He was talking about life's deepest pursuit, our spiritual relationship with God. He wasn't interested in the politics and power and money, all these things. He was dealing with man's deepest problem, our deepest problem, our alienation from God. We are separate from God. We are separated from God and that leaves a deep yearning in all of us. Sometimes we distract ourselves with our work, with our worldly pursuits because somebody told us that if you did all these things, you'll be happy. I, I don't know. I guess our generation, many of you are you know, either boomers or after boomers is uh, Gen X, right? I think so, huh? X, Y, Z. Yeah, I think, you know, I think many of us are in that generation. When we grew, was growing up, our parents told us, you have to, what must you do? Study hard. Am I right? Yeah, clearly we all have uh, same parents, right? Because we all, you must study hard and you must work hard. If you study hard, you work hard, you get yourself a good education, you get a certificate, you're going to get a good job, right? And you get a good job, you have a nice house, you have a family, maybe you have a car, and then you'll be happy. So we all, well, what do we know? We're kids, right? So we listen. Yes, let's work hard. Let's study hard. And actually, it kind of worked. It kind of worked. Because if you did come out with a degree, you actually did get a good job. And lo and behold, before you know it, you had a house, of course, with a house loan, but you had a house, and you had a car with a car loan, but you did have a car, and you sit down and, I'm supposed to be happy now. But I'm not really that happy. But okay, I'm supposed to be happy now, so let's just, let's do the thing that everyone does. Let's pretend to be happy. Right? And this is what we all do. We all pretend to be happy. Now, our children, they are smarter, you know. We, because it worked for us, we think it worked for us, we tell them, you must study hard. You must work hard. And then the society will reward you. So they, like us, were very obedient. They studied hard. They worked hard. And they came out and they realized that, you know, it, it didn't quite work. You know, because the houses are now the four-room flat in this place. It's about half a million dollars. That's just not going to... Cars, forget it. you got two cars, you know. In Hokkien, we say you got car. You, you can't even afford a car now. I mean, you can't even afford the, the license for the car. So... So what are you going to do? Well, let's just do what institution tells us to do. Study harder. Go back for a second degree, right? Get a master's degree. Work harder, the hustle culture, right? And you come out and, wow, everyone's doing that, right? So what do you do? Okay, that's grab delivery. I could do that, right? And what are you going to do? You find at the end of that pursuit, that's no part of goal at the end of that rainbow. Actually, there's no rainbow, right? There's not even a rainbow. 
Many people, when they can't get to that state, they just pretend. They just turn on the TV, right? That's the drug, right? They take a turn on the TV, they just entertain themselves until they forget their thirstiness, until they forget their hunger. I'm, I'm glad that Nicodemus didn't do that. Jesus says, to solve this problem, you can't just study harder. You can't just go to Kumon, right? Send our kids to Kumon. You can't just work harder. You can't just hustle more. You have to be born again. This is a different kind of thing. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 6, That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. I think what it's kind of pointing to is that these things that you are trying to do, they are flesh. They are not going to address your spiritual need. You're not going to be happy. Right? You're not going to be satisfied. Deep down, you will not be settled. You will pursue fame. You will pursue fortune. You pursue your wealth, security. You think that these things will make you happy. I'm telling you, only spirit gives birth to spirit. I think this is kind of what Jesus is saying here. Now, I said earlier that Jesus did not answer this um, Nicodemus on this question. Now, interestingly, John chapter 4 has another story that's actually very similar. Now, Jesus goes all the way to a place called Samaria. Right? He's traveling through. He goes to this Sikhar, which I think today is Nablus, the city of Nablus, in the West Bank. And over there was a well of Jacob. There he meets a Samaritan woman, right? This woman, colorful life, you know, uh, and, and in that case, Jesus goes there and they have this conversation, very interesting conversation, no time for it today, but just one part of the conversation, Jesus starts asking her for water from the well because she was drawing water from the well and then the conversation turns around to the point where Jesus says, I have water, Right? I water that you need. And that is sort of like a conversation. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water, that the water of the well, that physical water, will thirst again. Yes, you drink it. I mean, you, you, you quench your thirst for a little while, but you'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about these two things, right? Flesh and spirit. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into eternal life. Jesus is saying to us, physical things will only satisfy the physical person. Flesh is what they call it. Right? Now, I don't know about you. You know, After being a Christian for 40 years, I do realize that sometimes we wonder. right? We wonder in our faith and our understanding and our pursuits. Instead of recognizing that what we need is this spiritual water. Now, to be fair, we all need natural fulfillment, right? We all need to eat. We need to have food on the table. We need to have clothes on our back, a roof over our heads. These physical things are not unimportant. They are needed. But these things will not bring you to where God wants you to be. Ultimately, God wants this relationship with you. When you have that relationship with God, you know, I mean, you feel like you just had a great meal and you satisfied your deepest need. And I feel like even after being a Christian for very, very many years, when I read this again while I was away, I realized, you know what? I think, I think I need to be born again. You know? I think we all 
in a sense of the word, we all need to be born again. We need to drink afresh from the living water. That is not enough for us to 20 or 30 years ago drink from the river and wow, we are so excited. You know, Jesus is so near. He's... Over the years, we became thirsty again, you know. We became thirsty and after a while, in our thirst, we start pursuing all these other things. We start to pursue institutional religion and we forgot to pursue Jesus. So I feel almost like Nicodemus hearing from Jesus, I'm a religious person and you know what? We need to be born again. We all need this touch again. But here's the problem, right? How? Jesus, how? How do we get born again? Thankfully, while Jesus never really answered Nicodemus, maybe Jesus thought, well, you're a religious leader. You figure it out, right? But with that woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, Jesus actually answers. Now, this Samaritan woman, she was going all over the shop. She was starting to talk about religion, about politics and every other thing, right? And Jesus was all the way trying to drop hints to her. Just, that's not the thing, right? No, 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 that's not this thing. You know, worship God in spirit and in truth. She, she finally gets it when Jesus says, you never thirst again. She's like, okay, I, I, I do want that. If this is so good, I want some more. How can I get it? Jesus answers. In John chapter 4, verse 10, he says, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me this drink, here's what you do. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. I mean, mind blown. Huh? That's all. So simple. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to say some special words. I don't have to offer up some sacrifices. I don't have to fulfill some special criteria. As it turns out, you don't get this water by lowering a bucket into a hole into the ground. You get this living water by lowering your knees in humility and in faith and simply asking, Jesus, I need you again. And the promise of God, the supernatural promise of God is that He will do it. If you will recognize our own emptiness, if we will recognize our own need, our own frustrations with trying to fill this gap with something else, if you say, God, I want you now. I've tried all these things. You know, it's not cutting it for me. I want you again. And this doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, but we come to God and say, God, you know, I just need this water that you can give. And God says, you will be given that living water. Today, I think this is an invitation. You know, I'm thinking about revival. Revival really happens when we come to God. It's not about what happens out there. You know, I mean, we got loads of testimonies of people getting healed and miracles. It's, it's just a weekly thing, you know. Almost every week, we got someone else got healed. Someone else got healed from this. Someone else got healed from that. You know, just the other day, you know, I'll, I won't mention who, but someone's telling me that, you know, they, they had a scan and, and there was a black spot and they were worried they were cancer, prayed and the scan came back. It was clear completely. Doctors were surprised. This is like a regular event, you know. But you know what? The greatest miracle... Not these things. The greatest miracle is when we find ourselves knocking on the door of Jesus and Jesus says, you know, what do you want? And you say, well, I, I want some of what you have, right? I want some of that 
living water. I want to be born again. And I want you to try and remember if you can. The very first time you drank from that living water. Can you remember? I don't know how it's different for all of us here. I'm sure it's all a little bit different. For me, it was back when I was in secondary school. Struggling with my faith, I suppose. Do I believe this Jesus? Is this the real Jesus? And that day when I myself, you know, all by myself, picking up one small booklet and decided, you know what, I'm going to pray this prayer. I don't know these words, but someone said that if I said this prayer, Jesus will come into my life. And I said, Lord, I said that prayer. But would you come into my life? You know, when that moment, can you remember that moment when you first drank of that living water? I think we all need to be drinking of that water again. We all need to be born again. Even if you are a Christian for many years. And today, I think this is sort of that kind of time. You know, we are asked everyone to close your eyes, you know. You want to kind of wrap up this sermon. Going past our, you know, respectability, trying to appear in a certain way to, to the people around us, to our family. Just you and Jesus. You know, it's so funny when Jesus came to that well. He actually sent his own disciples away so that there'll be nobody there, just Jesus and that woman. Now, this is kind of that time, just you and Jesus and at the well. If this is you and you're saying, I need to drink that living water again. I need to be born again. You know, this is your day, right? First of all, if you've never done this before, if in fact, you've never drank of that living, you're not even a Christian, but you're struggling with faith just like I was 40 years ago. If this is you this morning, um, just quickly, if that's you, no one looking around, just put your hands up real quick and say, Pastor, I want to drink of that living water. Is there anyone? Now just check, is there anyone here who happened to be like that? Yes, I see the hand, you can put it down again. Is there anyone else here who's in that kind of situation? You say, Pastor, would you pray for I see the hand over on the left. Yeah, you can put it down again. A few people. Is there anyone else? I just don't want to miss anyone because... I know Jesus loves you so much. Now if that's you today, you know, this is really special for you to drink that water for the very first time. Uh, and let me just pray a prayer. Lord, you see these hands of these people who, for the very first time, like Nicodemus, you know, I've tried it all. I've given it my best. It's just not working for me. But Jesus if this water is so good as you have said it today, would you give me some of that living water so that I won't thirst again? Would you come into their hearts right now, this very moment, Lord, give them what you've given people for so many generations, seeking and searching and finding. Right now, God, would you touch them where they are, Lord? Let them experience the joy of that relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus. Now, for the rest of us, I'm not even going to ask you to lift up your hands because, you know, truthfully, I think we all need it. I think we all need today the living water. So, God, would you hear our personal cry to you right now, individually, saying, Jesus, I need you. I need you again. Heal us, Lord, from the dryness in our hearts. 
from the empty pursuits of our life. Bring us back to that well of living water. Every one of us, Lord. May your Holy Spirit pour yourself throughout our lives, Lord. Heal us of our disappointments, our disillusionments. Heal us of our backsliding, God. Bring us back to that first place once again where we experience your love, your embrace, your fullness, when we had everything we ever needed once again, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen, amen. Let's just stand all together. We've got a kind of new song that we want to sing, but you know, I think it's a beautiful song for all of us. Just kind of try and follow along. Come on down to the living water Waves of mercy washing over you No more strangers, only sons and daughters Come down to the living water and rise up new Come down on down to the living water Waves of mercy washing over you No more strangers, only sons and daughters Come down to the living water and rise up new Oh, this is your invitation Oh, no more lost and alone If today you made that decision for the very first time, after the service, please come down and talk to our pastors. You know, we, we want to celebrate with you. We want to walk with you. You know, the song says, No more strangers, only sons and daughters. Can you say amen? Amen, amen.